going to talk about real repentance. We're going to see it in Scripture. We're going to go through it, and we're going to read it, and we're going to read it in the context of King David, and we're going to read it in the context that is known to us from Scripture as a man after God's own heart. We're going to read it in the context of someone you and I talked about last week that has made not only one mistake, but a just many of them in succession to the point that he has just really been a total train wreck. Just a disaster. From someone loving and kind and honorable to the polar opposite. He has grieved the Holy Spirit. He has sinned against God. He has sinned against the nation. He has sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against Uriah. He has sinned against those that have tried to to help him make the right decision, even the servants in his own house. He has sinned against all of them, and he has walked down this path that has now made him not only an adulterer, but a murderer and a liar, and just a really poor individual at this moment. But we do so in the context of Scripture, knowing that the Bible still labels him a man after God's own heart. And so you and I need to take just a second and just thank God for the opportunity that a bad decision doesn't make your life and it doesn't make mine. There's more to be done. There's more to go through. So we talk about real repentance this morning. We'll start in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And then we'll go into Psalm 51. I have to show you Psalm 51 this morning. We have to read it out loud because that's where you get to see the heart of someone that is really repentant. 2 Samuel is just the story of what happened. Okay? And it's been, uh, again, just been a hard time of, of ministry and life. Everyone's doing it together. And I think this morning's a sermon is going to be helpful for some of us here today. Look at 2 Samuel chapter uh, 12 with me. Where have we been the last couple of weeks? Well, we talked about uh, the B.C. gospel. 2 Samuel chapter 9 was the story of David, right? He gets a chance to rest. The wars are shut down. He wants to honor God in that rest. And God says, you're not building me a temple. Your son will. And so I, I wanted the idea of David's personality to kick into you that when God says no, he doesn't just hold back into himself That very next moment of scripture is him wanting to bless someone of Jonathan's lineage, of of King Saul's lineage. And so that's 2 Samuel chapter 9. That's the story of the gospel. The the son or the daughter of an enemy kingdom, God blesses. That's your story, that's my story if you know him. That's the story of that chapter. Last week we talked about 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we titled it, It Happened. The problem with that is that whole story, it never just happens. Listen, you don't wake up on Monday morning after coming to church and being uh, blessed by the Holy Spirit after leaving this church and being the church and blessing someone and loving them. You don't just start on Sunday morning, and I just say that for the contrast, get up being a godly person, and then Monday morning become an adulterer, a murderer, and a liar. There is a process there that happens. And you and I need to be aware of that. Why? Because pieces of that process are daily life. The cycle of sin looks like this. This is what we talked about last week. The first piece was a lot of times we're just out of position. It's a gray area. 
It's a moment that's not necessarily sinful, but you and I are out of position. The Bible goes out of its way to say that in the time of the year when kings go to war, David stayed home. That's where this whole catastrophe starts. It wasn't a sinful decision. It was an out-of-position decision. What happens? He looks over and he's tempted. Then that temptation starts to churn on him a little bit. He thinks about it a second time. He thinks about it a third time. He is intrigued with that temptation. And so he ends up, what happens? He ends up acting upon it. The problem with the cycle of sin that you and I need to understand is acting upon it is not level one of your sin. It's level two. Level one is being intrigued by it enough to let it play with your imagination, to play with your heart, to desire something that you know is not yours or that you know God cannot bless. That is phase one of our sin. It starts there, then it's acted upon. David's story shows us that very, very clear. What's phase, what's the next part? He covers his sin. After he's covered his sin, he gets calloused to it. If you've read through the story, just goes about his business like nothing's going on, right? He ends up being inclusive with his sin. He has to bring other people into it with him. What happens? He sends the letter that murders Uriah by Uriah's hand, and Uriah takes it and he hands it to Joab, the army, and Joab, the, the, the leader of the army, unfolds that letter from the king, and he reads it, and King David says, send Uriah to the part of the battle where they fight the fiercest, and when he is drawn in, you pull back. Murder him. And what does Joab do? He does what the king says. But see, our sin cycle, when you and I get to a certain point, we don't like being there alone anymore. It feels dirty and it feels nasty. It's a lot easier if somebody else comes and gets in it with us. And so when you and I are living in sin, it's very easy to be inclusive with that, to want to bring other people into it with us or to navigate toward people that are already living it. Then he becomes detached. You remember the story. Uriah wasn't the only man to die from the army. There were many more. And the king just says, well, the sword swallows some and leaves others. Go back and fight again. Be encouraged, Joab. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. And then we talked last week about the idea that God will expose our sin. What is done in darkness will be shown in light, whether it's on judgment day in front of Jesus Christ or as the story that we'll read today, it is done in real life when God exposes what we've done and who we are. There is an exposition. God will bring to light what has been done. And when that happens, there is one of two options. You and I will get bitter or we will repent. You and I will tell God you're wrong and I'm right. Or you and I will tell God you're right. You've always been right. I am wrong. Forgive me. Change me. Help me. And when we get to that moment, when you and I get to that position where it's either repentant or bitter, what we read today is what that looks like. Let's read the story together. We won't be here long, but we will be in Psalm 51 here in just a couple minutes. <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 12 says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, Nathan is a prophet, and he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he came, uh, he come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. The prophet Nathan comes in and he tells David a story and he says there's a city and in this city there are two men. One is rich, one is poor. One is rich and has many. One is poor and he has one little lamb. And Nathan says, you know what, the rich man got a guest. And we've talked about this, this culture before. We've talked about that idea before. There was hospitality was huge then. If you were a, a, a son or a daughter of Abraham, the idea of being hospitable was huge. And so what happens, he tells a story that makes perfect sense. And he says, the rich man receives a visitor. And that visitor comes in. And the rich man, instead of slaughtering one of his own lambs, kills the poor man's one little lamb and he takes that lamb and he slaughters it for the meal with the rich man I want to tell you one thing right now and this hit me this morning as I was kind of playing this over in my mind it didn't make it in the notes I want to tell you one thing this morning number one be careful how far you jump when someone gets in trouble be careful how much you rage against certain people be careful how much uh, your emotion gets spurred and it just jumps into the, the atmosphere when something wrong happens and you want to dole out judgment and you want to be angry. Be careful how forceful you push against other people when they sin and it doesn't look like yours. Why? Because this story is built so that David sees his hypocrisy immediately. It's not just built to reveal the adultery. It's not just built to, to, to reveal the murder. It is built so that David sees he's a hypocrite. He said, what you have done, you are now upset with someone else doing. Be very careful. I'm begging you right now. Micah 6.8 says, love mercy. Love it. Desire it. Pray for it. Why? Because when you and I stand before the Lord, I promise you, you and I will not want judgment. You and I will want mercy. And in that moment, we will be overjoyed with the amount of mercy and forgiveness we have given in this world. You say, some people have really hurt me. Absolutely they have. When you have an opportunity to forgive them, forgive them. Why? Because there's going to come a day when the only thing that is going to matter is not justice. It's going to be mercy. Because you and I are going to line up in front of King Jesus and there he will be in all of his glory, holy and pure. And he's the one in charge. And you and I are going to stand, we're going to look at him and in that moment you will not think about anyone else. You will not think about anything else. You will not even think about the horrible things that were done to you. What you will be thinking is, I need mercy. I need grace. I'm a sinner. Be careful with your reaction, especially in this day and age. We're watching things on TV. You can clip it, scroll them on the internet. We're seeing these things that are judgment worthy. They absolutely are. But when it's private people that are making a mess, be careful how much judgment and anger you want to dole out. Let him who thinks he stands 
take heed, pay attention, lest you fall. Pride comes before the fall. There is one judge, and he will judge. If you and I trust in him, if we believe in him, our theology says we can leave judgment to him because he's going to do it better than us anyway. This passage, these first six verses in chapter 12, just scream to me the idea that we need to be careful. Be careful when other people fail, how fast you are to jump in and start throwing stones. Because many times our hypocrisy is going to show. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Full of terrifying words. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I have gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were too little, I would add to you as much more. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this, uh, what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up enemy against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Verse 12, for what you did secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. And David said to Nathan, it's not my fault. David said to Nathan, well, if Bathsheba hadn't been in plain view. David said to Nathan, well, if Uriah had just went home and slept with his wife. David said to Nathan, not my fault, it's someone else's. And David said to Nathan, but if, David said to Nathan, if my past had been a little different, but David said to Nathan, Who? Against Bathsheba, yes. Against Uriah, yes. Against the nation of Israel, absolutely. Against Joab, who he brought into the frame with him, yes. Against this baby that's going to die, yes. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. The start of repentance looks like that. No excuses. No half credit, no half blame. If our heart will not do that when confronted with the truth of God's word coming from another individual, if our heart will not start, not start there, you're not ready. You're not moving forward in the right direction yet. How many times have I sat with people and listened to conversations where I am a Christian, I am a pastor, they are a Christian, and we're having this conversation, and instead of owning the moment, yeah, what I did was bad, but if this, this, or this, if my circumstances were different, if my wife didn't do this, if my husband didn't do this, if my children didn't do this, it doesn't 
matter. I have sinned against God and therefore it starts with me. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to walk someone back into getting the joy of their salvation if they won't repent of the sin they did second. They were sinned against and then the enemy got in there and he said, you deserve it. Go bite off that fruit, go take that, go do that, go be a part of that jump ship, do what you want to do, and they do that thing. They have been tempted, and they act upon it. And you look at someone like that, and you say, your joy will not come back. Your healing will not come until you can respond that you were wrong in what you did, no matter the circumstances of how you've got there. Christian, I cannot, I cannot tell you how important this is when it comes to real repentance. You can't share credit of your sin with anyone else. You definitely can't do it in God's presence. You say, well, you don't know what happened to me. I know what happened to our Savior. Beaten, mocked, abused, and never lashed out. You say, well, is that what God wants for my life? In that moment, it may be. It was what he wanted for Jesus. And if Jesus could walk through those circumstances and you and I are indwelt with his spirit and, and we, we carry his name, then you and I too can walk through those moments and we cannot lash out or not sin. Is there moments where righteous indignation needs to be doled out? Absolutely. If there were some more heroic people in our culture, a lot less people would suffer. If there were some people in middle school and high school that had half a moral compass and would dig their heels in, a lot of these kids that are abused and mocked and bullied would have that go away immediately. If there were some people with some backbones working in the places we work, a lot less people would suffer when they're mocked or made fun of or hurt. There's a moment when righteous indignation must come about. Well, when it comes to doling out judgment or when it comes to a sinful reaction, you don't get to use the excuse, well, but they did this. That's not how this works with God. Because ultimately, David just said it, you and I have sinned against him first. We've sinned against God first. And he didn't sin against me. He didn't hurt me. He's not the one that doled it out. So if I have sinned against him, then I need to apologize to him and own it all. And listen, friend, if you have never done this, if you have never done this in its purest form, then you're not saved. You're not a Christian. Your past has nothing to do with the moment of salvation. The only thing you get to bring into that moment is your sin. And if I walk in and, I, I'm, and I'm praying this prayer or I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, man, I'm just going to repent of half my sin because the other half really isn't my fault. Friends did this, my family did this, my parents weren't nice, my grandparents weren't this, I was poor, whatever. Then you've never even experienced salvation. Because salvation is walking in with your mess and looking at a holy God and saying, all of these things that I've done that are evil and wicked and vile, I've done against you, and for that I'm sorry. And if you don't save me, I'm going to be cast from your presence. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. 
Verse 15 says, then Nathan went to his house. Real repentance, when you look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, we've come to the rebuke. We've come to the moment where God is going to, to pull off all the darkness and the shadow and the lying. He's going to remove it all in a moment. He's going to remove it through Nathan, the prophet. He's going to do it in the king's presence. He's going to do it wide open. And not only is he going to expose everything David has done, he is going to expose his rampant hypocrisy by creating a story that generates an outcome, rage, You know, Nathan's story sets this trap. And where does he start with the story? He starts by telling the story. When he confronts David, he goes right into this. The Lord loves you. You are the one he anointed. He gave you the kingdom. And if it weren't enough, he would give you more. The goodness of God is the starting of our judgment. Not the badness of what we've done. Nathan tells him that story and then he says, the Lord loves you. He anointed you king. He did it so long ago. He's carried you all these years. He's given you this, this, and this. And if it weren't enough, he would give you so much more. God loves you. And you've sinned against him. That's a sobering thought. You and I could look at it even deeper and say the story of the crucifixion is God telling you and I that he loves us. Is Jesus Christ walking that road that you and I should have walked? And if we could see it, do you remember the Passion of the Christ when that came out? The only movie I have ever been to, when you left the theater, no one said a word. Nobody. Why? Because for the first time ever, visually, they gave you something that you couldn't overcome. is even worse to see it in real life it would be even worse but the but the the concept the comment is the lord loves you and you've sinned against him you've done what's evil in his sight the sword will never leave you there's a transition in david's story after this chapter his family life falls apart we'll see it in the coming weeks his sons try to betray him and take his throne. There's war and sexual sin in his home. Nathan says, you're going to be embarrassed publicly. What you've done in secret, I'm going to show openly. And the child's going to die. David has gotten all of this. He could have sloughed it off. He could have owned half of it. He could have run Nathan out of his throne room. He could have even killed the prophet. Instead, his response is this, I have sinned against the Lord. You say, where does something like this come from? How do we get uh, from what you and I deal with most of the time is this is jockeying back and forth for credit of sin or, or jockeying back and forth of how much blame we'll actually take and how much someone else gets to take with us and whether we're doing it uh, uh, verbally where other people can hear, which turns into a really nasty situation, or most of the time what's going on is we're doing this internally. Yeah, what I did was bad, but it wasn't really that bad. I mean, it was a little bit bad. Right? And I'm a little bit sorry. What we see with David is an absolute crushing. This hard-hearted, 
hard-necked person, and it's probably got something to do with the time period he's living. If we know birth time and, and pregnancy, and I got five kids, and I'm pretty aware in about nine months, right, your life's getting ready to change again. If we're looking at that, I would say this. David has spent somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six months without the Lord. He has sinned grievously. He has done many things, and the Lord's presence has not been on him. Not a song sung, not a hymn played, not a psalm written, nothing. It's been blank. Why? Because there is tremendous amount of sin in his life, and the Holy Spirit is not there working right now. And so the prophet comes in, and this is the interaction with God that he's not had in forever, and it's one where God speaks, and now he has to respond. And instead of being bitter, turn to Psalm 51 with me, and let's read a little bit of this passage together. Psalm 51. If you've got titles uh, in your Bible to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Listen, friends, the reason why you and I can respond is because God is so good. The reason why you and I get to tell him we're sorry and ask for so much as you see in this psalm is not because of us. It is because of him and his goodness and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. The fact that his character cannot be shaken, that he is good and righteous and holy. And so when you and I are swamped in a mess that we've created, we can immediately start to pray like this. Have mercy, O oh God. According to what? Your steadfast love. According to what? Your abundant mercy. Listen, if you and I are, I mean, like how do you even mentally try to come up with stuff with this? Like the, the ocean is salty, yes. If, if all of your sin is one drop of salt in the ocean, that's what it's like. And that ocean that just absorbs it is God's mercy. It's God's goodness. Now there are consequences to our sin, Absolutely. And some of them are far worse than others. So don't get confused that all sin is the same. That is absolutely a lie. It is not true. If all sin is the same, try stealing a pencil from someone you love and then try robbing from the government. It's not all the same. It breaks our fellowship with God. Absolutely true. But if I can fix my mess by giving a pencil back as opposed to 50 years in prison, does that make sense? They're not all the same. They all separate us from God. And one sin sends you to hell. Yes. He is absolute purity. But when it comes to living this life, certain sins are easier to clean up. Other ones committed are a disaster. But it doesn't matter what it looks like, you can start here because God's mercy is bigger. His grace is bigger. And when you and I pretend like it's not big enough, like where have I seen this happen? Somebody will have um, a past that's shady. Something's wrong. 
let's say they got saved or they rededicated, now they're older in life, they will have children that will bring that stuff back up to them. Or their own flesh will. And here's what you have to counsel. Here's how you have to counsel someone like that. Every time you bring up something that you have repented for, you're saying Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, so you need to verbalize this again for God. Because the first time you apologized for it wasn't enough, time wasn't enough. and so you're just going to keep coming back to that well until you feel better. You will see this play out. If you talk to people and you are close to them, you will watch this play out. We do not understand God's grace. How merciful he is and how good the sacrifice was that Jesus portrayed on the cross for you and I that he went through with. We don't understand it. Just know that no matter what you've done yesterday, you can start right there. There will be a lot of people in heaven you and I will not understand how they got there if you don't understand Psalm 51 verse 1. Because anybody in a moment can pray that no matter what they've done. Yesterday, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, on their deathbed, right after it happened. It does not matter. The Lord saves wicked people. If he didn't, I would not be a Christian. And I was saved at the age of 10. Hadn't done a whole lot yet. Done some pretty shady stuff. Right? But I wasn't gangbanging or murdering people. I was 10. If the Lord could save me then. He can save anyone else at any point in their, in their life. Because he only saves wicked people. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. What a bold ask. What a bold walked into the throne room of heaven with the only one that's ever been righteous and holy and good. And you come in with all your filth. You come in with all your filth and you just say, clean me up. If you don't clean me up, I'm in trouble, Lord. That's beautiful. David has committed a series of events that are just heartbreaking. People have literally died, many. And he walks in and he says, clean me up. To verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. For the Christian, your sin is going to eat up your days, your attention, and your energy. If you are living in known open rebellion to God, it will eat you alive. It is spiritual cancer. Robs your days, robs your energy, robs it all. Robs your attention, robs your focus. It's all gone. David, for months... For months, his sin has ever been before him. He can't sleep without thinking about it. He can't wake up without thinking about it. The wickedness and the evil he has done is ever before him. Can't forgive. Can't forgive my own sin. Look at verse 4. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Trying to figure out the last two pieces of that verse and I've racked my brain all morning just kind of dwelling on that and thinking about that. What happens if God doesn't punish sin? His whole character has been marred. 
And so what does David say? Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. I am owning it. And you've exposed it. And you're not going to excuse it. Payment will have to be made. See, who's offended sets the stage. I have sinned against the one that has loved me. I have sinned against the only good one. I have sinned against the one that deserves my total allegiance. We talk about the jealousy of God at times as one of his attributes. And sometimes that word with the connotation people get really kind of squirrely with. Like, well, God can be jealous? Absolutely. There is affection that is due him. It's rightfully his. If you're married in here and you're not upset when your spouse is not jealous, or you've never felt a little jealousy yourself, you understand the context of that. It is deserved to you, and it is given to another. God is a jealous God. And the one that should have had David's full allegiance is the one that David has sinned against. So David is looking at this holiness and this righteousness of God and he's saying against you and you alone, the one that has treated me good, the one that has never hurt me, the one that has never harmed me, the one that has blessed me and anointed me king, against you have I sinned, the one that deserves everything I have to offer. Forgive me. But man, there's a whole wake of bad stuff that's happened too. But as a Christian, it all falls under the heading of grieving God and sinning against him first. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. David says, as far back as I have even been created, there have been sin in me. There has been sin in my life and in my heart. I cannot escape it. I need to be cleansed from it. He owns it. I was born in the sin, the sin nature of man, the sin nature of Adam. I am dirty right now. I have made a mess, but you can clean me up. And an amazing promise from a good God. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Man, that verse hit me this morning. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. God, you expose this. God, you have corrected this. You have broken bones and hurt me. Let them rejoice. What an amazing promise. What an amazing prayer. You could say, in my darkest moment, in my worst action, in my worst interaction, the Lord can take that brokenness and make it rejoice. Yes, He can. God can make broken bones sing. Some of you, your testimony in life, some of you even in this church, some of you watching somewhere else, your testimony in life is that broken bone singing. There's something that you have to lug around with you forevermore. And God has taken that thing that you did or was done to you and he has made it sing. It tells his goodness. It tells his glory. It tells of redemption. 
It tells of strength and courage. It tells of what God can do. And so that broken bone that was exposed, that God had to break so that you would get desperate and you would call out, is now singing praises. That an amazing promise. Listen, if you don't think that's awesome, then it's been too long since you remember one of your really big mess-ups. Like, it's been too long since you remember. Man, I really, I really tanked that one. And the Lord is making that broken bone sing. Look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Whose salvation? Your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. God, don't do it begrudgingly, but behold me, uphold me with a willing spirit. Fight my battles. Make my life something special. Strengthen me. Forgive me. Wash me. Awesome promises. Awesome thoughts. Blot out my sin. Create a clean heart in me. Keep me close, God. Don't cast me away. Blot out. The evil that I've done, restore to me the joy of whose salvation? His salvation. It's one of the pieces of this passage that's so easy to memorize. When you think about it, you get the opportunity to just wake up on Monday morning and think, do I have any joy? Do I have God's joy? I've got to go to work, man, and it stinks. Do you have God's joy? hard, scared, people are sick, return to me the joy of your salvation. Only God can remove your sin, and here's the beauty, and make you righteous. And Jesus does that. The cross of Christ is that picture. Look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from the blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And you say, God, why? I love this. Don't miss this. Do not miss this. David says, I have made a mess and he says God why why do I have to walk this road why do why did I do it and he says forgive me restore me create in me a clean heart and I will sing your praises sometimes your message sometimes your testimony is only going to be heard by somebody because of the catastrophe that you walked through. And most of the time, it will be because of what you did. Some of you have a whole ministry because of that idea. The Lord has redeemed you, created in you something special, and now your responsibility is to sing His praises. Tell of His goodness. And you know what happens when you do that? It's like throwing a lifeline to someone else that's drowning. Because all they can see if they're living where they're at right now, all they can see is what David saw, which was just his sin. And then this person comes along and this person says, man, let me tell you God's goodness. Let me tell you who he saves. Let me tell you what he did with my life. Let me tell you what he put back together. And so when you say, God, why do I have to walk through this? 
sometimes the answer is just so you can sing his praises. Because somebody needs to hear. Somebody needs to hear that on our hierarchy of sin, the Lord can still use certain people that have done this thing or done that thing. And it is exactly what they need in the moment to be drawn out of their mess. And it comes, why? It comes because you're telling others the goodness of God and His mercy. Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Look at verse 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And that verse lines up perfectly with the song we were singing right before we started. Are you heartbroken this morning? If you're not, at least a little bit, then congratulations because you've not been on social media or TV all week and I'm proud of you. If you're not just a little bit heartbroken this morning, then you are totally detached from what the world has to offer. Or you are detached from what it's going to hand your children. It's okay to be a little bit heartbroken right now. It's okay to be desperate about things that don't, that don't even involve you. Now, get into your personal life. Are you desperate? Are you heartbroken? Have you messed up? Have you gotten that phone call? Have you gotten that doctor's report? Are you limping? Are you hurting? Is something wrong? Those are the people that draw us close to God. That's why I'm telling you not to curse those moments. Because in your desperation, you find intimacy with the God of the universe. And a million years from now, you will be glad that you did. Sacrifices without obedience are meaningless. Offerings without commitment are wasted. The broken get access. They are humble needy and they are exactly who God is intimate with we finish up this morning verse 18 and 19 do good in Zion in your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered on your altar and man you just jump out of this and you think what in the world just happened David's talking about himself his repentance his brokenness I love this your community will share in your repentance the blessings that come from repentant people are shared by others. Your family will rejoice. Your church will rejoice. Your community will be stronger. So what you've done can't be shared with anyone else. It is on you. But when you repent and you start to move forward, everybody is blessed. What an amazing promise. I would expect nothing different from the God of the universe that interacts with individuals but has built everything, everything around community. The community of your family, the community of our church, the community of your community, our community. He has built it all wrapped around that so it makes perfect sense that the psalmist under the, the direction of the Holy Spirit, he's writing this psalm out and it's all about him and it's all about his mess. And then when he gets to the end, he brings everyone else in with him. Why? Because when repentant people show up and God starts to move in their life like that, he starts to bless everyone else around them. So what do we do with this? As they come this morning to play, as we come and get ready to finish up, the idea is what do you do with Psalm 51? I hope you read it with hope. 
But we've got to ask ourselves some questions. Do you remember the first moment you had a prayer like that? Do you remember the first moment that you owned all of your deeds of wickedness? See, I've never had a moment like that. Then listen, you've never run into the Lord of the universe. If you haven't owned all of your misdeeds, if you've given half credit to other people, you have never run into Him. We live in a culture where for years people were drugged to the altar and made to pray prayers and then they got up from that moment and lived like the devil ever since. They have destroyed beautiful theology of being in the family of God. They've destroyed theology. Why? Because they've manipulated it and made it more. Listen to me. If you have never experienced that moment, that moment of repentance where you looked at God and said, I have been totally wrong. You are totally right. And if you don't wash me and clean me up, I am done. All of it. The little stuff, the big stuff, whatever you deem in between. If you've never had that moment, the first time you're not a Christian. I don't care how many times you've prayed the sinner's prayer. I don't care how much money you've given to church. I don't care how many times you've come when the doors have been opened. If you have never owned your sin and looked at God and said, I am a nasty mess, I need you, then you don't know him. You just don't. You need to think about that. You need to let the Holy Spirit talk to you. You need to, to realize what's going on. You've been deceived and tricked. There is no half security. Fully in, fully out. Now the second one, Christian, you say, yeah, I remember that moment. I do too. I was 10. It was vacation Bible school. I was worried about what come next. I was a scared little boy, and God saved me that night. I remember that. When was the last time we had a moment where you just broke down? that kind of intimacy with a good and holy God, go home today and think about it. Look at where your life misses and where Jesus, uh, where he would set the standard and where we miss. Go home today and think about that. That brokenness will draw you into God's presence. Lord, I love you. I want to know you better. There's things that are hindering that. Help me. There are weights and there is sin and I need your help. Are you missing his joy? salvation, then something's wrong. Pray about it. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you what's going on. Are you swamped with your own wickedness? Have you made a mess? Go to Psalm 51 and read it until you get it. Read it again and again and again. You say, I have made a mess. Then go to that Psalm and read it and look at the purest heart we can find that has made a mess and watch how God interacts. Do we realize that the sacrifice without obedience is useless? God all you want. It doesn't matter. It's useless. Say, but I come to church. It doesn't matter. I've given. It doesn't matter. I give money. Thousands of dollars. I give my time. It doesn't matter. Without obedience, it doesn't matter. Now, the church is going to use it. But as far as your life goes, you're not earning. You're not earning. His love and care. Finally, as you stand this morning, one final question. Do you want to be clean? Have you come Jesus. Sing with us this morning.